Father, thank You for this community. Thank You um, for just the way that You involve Yourself in our lives and that You constantly pursue us and that You care for us and that You don't give up on us. Um, Jesus, thank You for coming and dying on the cross for our sins, offering us the opportunity um, of eternal life and life with You forever. Jesus, as we are in the process of just wrestling with what is true and wrestling with um, just life in general, we come here tonight and we announce that You are King. And we ask that through Your Spirit, You would give us courage to believe what's true and to throw out what's false. Um, And we ask all of that in Your name, Jesus. Amen. It's good to see all of you guys today. We are in a series, as I said earlier, on the, called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Temple. And we are covering some psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. And they are Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And the idea in, in this, these Psalms of Ascent were they were the songs that the Hebrew people, so if you don't know, in the Old Testament, there's a section of of things called the Psalms, and they're songs that the Hebrew people sang. And in particular, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 were the songs that they sung as they went up um, to the temple. And so they're called the songs of ascent simply because the people would be traveling from the lowlands and up through the hills to the temple. And so these are the things that they would sing over and over again as they journeyed, and it wasn't always a safe journey. Tonight, we're going to be in Psalm 122. It's the psalm we're going to cover. But before you go there, it seems to me that God has been kind of pushing me into the Gospel of John as I look at the Psalms. I keep ending up reading John and thinking about John. And so tonight, I want to open up in John chapter 15. Now, John is the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. And so the first part of the New Testament, which is Jesus' story, is the four Gospels. And we end up with John, who happens to be one of Jesus' disciples and one of Jesus' closest disciples. And he writes about Jesus later than everybody else. And he kind of has a different perspective because he has a, a closer relationship. And in chapter 15 of John, he tells us, or he offers us a little window into a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And so I want to read that to you. I'm going to read through verse 11 of John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Now, I want to talk to those of you first who have grown up in the church or who have been a Christian for a long time. You may have heard this spoken on, and what you have heard is that maybe this passage is a passage that is talking about your salvation. And it's talking about the fact that you could lose salvation. And maybe if you grew up in the church, you heard this passage talked about with the analogy of you have done, you're a follower of Jesus, but then you have some unconfessed sin. And then at one night you're crossing a bridge and a car runs over you and you hadn't confessed any sin. And so, oh no, you, you, since you didn't confess your sin, you were cut off and now you're going to hell. Right? Maybe you've heard that when people use this passage to talk about the fact that maybe you can lose your salvation. But let me, let me kind of paint you a little bit of a picture of the way things work. You see, I had a son and a daughter, and no matter how hard my son and daughter try not to be my son and daughter, they're still my son and daughter. I cannot undo the genetic code in my son. I can't come to him and be like, okay, I don't like you anymore, and I don't like the way you reflect on me, so we're going to remove your code. You're no longer going to be a seepin'. It's done. It's over. But this same idea works with God. That when you embrace Jesus and become a child of God, the code is in you. In fact, earlier in John, it's very clear. He says, Jesus says, nobody can take you out of your hand and nobody includes, or out of God's hand and nobody includes you. You can't take yourself out of God's hand. Okay? But, when Jesus is talking about these things, a lot of times because we're Americans, when Jesus tells a story, we want it to be literal. We want it to line up perfectly. But actually what Jesus is doing is talking about a whole bunch of things. One, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about Israel who thinks that they are the people of God, which they are. They're God's elect people. And yet what he's saying is that if you walk away from God, that something's going to happen to you. You're going to wither and part of you is going to fall off and you're going to, it's going to be thrown away. And he's telling this to his disciples who are going to start the new church, right? They're going to start the new people of God. They're going to be where God expands his home and includes a lot of people. Okay. Now, when it comes to my son, he is always, and my daughter, they are always sepins. But there is a sepin way, right? And there is a way to be obedient. And if my child moves further and further away from me and is rebellious and doesn't want to follow and doesn't want to be in relationship with me, you know what, if you sat down with him, he would say to you, I don't feel like dad loves me, right? I don't experience dad's love. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is there is a natural consequence to walking away from God. There's a natural consequence to turning your back. It, it's not about losing your identity in Christ. You're still his child, but you're not going to feel loved because you're not following the family rules. You're not, you're not in relationship and you've moved so far away that it's just withered. You've just withered. Now, I want to talk again to some of you who've been Christians for a while. I will talk to those of you who haven't, and those of you who aren't in a little bit. But I want to talk to you, those who have been walking at least for a while with Jesus, because here's kind of what all of us are at some level. We're onions, right? We smell good, we taste good, we burn people's eyes. But we're all, we're all onions. 
And when we become followers of Jesus, those onions, and really more than we're not onions, but kind of our fallenness and brokenness is represented by an onion. And as you begin to follow Jesus, the layers are peeled off of you, right? And there's another layer, and there's another layer of your brokenness and sin that's peeled off, right? And when you get that first layer peeled off the onion, wow, that's a lot of onion. But as you go, onion gets smaller and smaller. So for some of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, one of the things that you might say is, oh, there isn't really any anything in me that's withering, that's apart from God, where there's rebellion in me. Like, I've really gotten it down to the point where I'm not that rebellious. I'm not actually rebellious at all. In fact, I wouldn't consider myself rebellious, right? But all I want to do with this passage is for all of us, including those of you who've walked for, with Jesus for a while, is say this, that there are parts of you that are withering. There are parts of you in relationship with Jesus where you have said, no, I don't want Jesus to be in relationship with me in that part of my life. I don't want him to say anything. I don't want him to modify my behavior. I don't want him to call me to anything else. In that area, no. For some of us, it's like super obvious. We're like, yes, this is what I'm in rebellion in and I'm going to stay that way. For others of us, it's like, we got to think, what are the areas in our life that are withering? Okay, that that are going to be thrown into the fire, right? Because the whole gist of this passage in John is that what Jesus is saying is, if you'll stay in relationship with me, if you'll drop the 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 rebellion, if you're actually willing to trust me, turn and face me, be in relationship with me, and what trust is is simply the idea that you're going to allow somebody to impact you. So when we talk about faith and trust, the thing that you're saying about God is, God, I'm going to let you impact me. I'm going to let you change me. I'm going to let you transform something about me. Okay? So as we think about things, and as we look at Psalm 122, which we're going to jump back to, I want you to ask the question, what parts of my life are withering? What parts of my life have I turned my back on God? Which parts of my life are in danger of being broken up and chopped up and thrown into the fire, right? Where there is a real natural consequence in the sense of I don't, I feel like an absence of God. Now, Psalm 120, which is the beginning of the Psalms of Ascent, talks about this sense of withering, right? This sense of separation from God. Um, that's where the Psalms start. Because the Psalms of Ascent are healing Psalms. You begin in the beginning with kind of your broken state. You begin with where you're at, with the sense of, oh my gosh, look, there's a spot in my life where I, I'm, I'm separated from God, where I don't feel like things are right. Let me read to you quickly. Psalm 120, um, verse 5 says, and following says, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech and that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The concept of this is that you have moved yourself so far away from God as a person here, as an Israelite, that you have, you're living in Meshek and Kedar, in the farthest places from Jerusalem. And everybody there is for war. And you've been there basically for war. And every time you try to speak for peace, every time you try to speak for hope, people are all for war. Right? 
there's this sense that maybe it's just better to stay where you're at. To not be transformed at all. And so that's where you begin. And then in, in um, Psalm 121, this word is used over and over again. This word called shamar. Shamar is, is the word for keep and guard and watch. And if you read Psalm 121, the whole psalm is about God shamaring us, God keeping us, watching us. And the idea for this word comes out of, of a shepherding term. Shamar means to take these thorny bushes, basically, and build a pen for sheep. And then put the sheep in the pen so that the shepherd can go to sleep. Right? And they'll be protected from wolves. And so the writer of Psalm 121 is continually saying, God is watching me. He's got me safe. He's, he's got my life protected. Right? And Psalm 121 answers the question of Psalm 42 where the writer kind of echoes the thing that we hear when we decide to move towards God, when we decide to walk away from the, from the rebellion, when we decide to trust. And that question is, where is your God? And the answer in Psalm 121 is He's maker of heaven and earth and He's watching and guarding me. He's maker of heaven and earth and He's watching out for me. He has my soul. He has my life. Okay, So every time that you read Psalm 121, think Shamar. Keep. Guard. It's the beginning of transformation. Now, where we're going to jump in is in Psalm 122. And Psalm 122 is a perfect answer to Psalm 121. It kind of just is a continuation. Verse 1, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Okay. I rejoice with those who say, let's go up to the house of the Lord. A lot of times when you and I turn around and begin to face Jesus and begin to face the question of where is your God, we feel really lonely. And so if you can imagine, here's this guy who said, I'm headed up to Jerusalem for Passover, which is one of the Jewish feasts. He's going by himself. And all of a sudden there's this sense of joy because somebody in the crowd said, do you want to go up to the house of the Lord? He's not by himself. Now I want to talk about this word rejoice because a lot of times you and I kind of gloss over rejoice, right? But to rejoice is almost to squeal like a little girl. To be that happy when something great happens. Last, last night, we had a big party for Anna. She turned 16 years old. There was lots of masks and all those kinds of things. And Donovan played. His band played. And as the music started, like instantly as it started, David and Adrian Crawford's little daughter, Lily, as, as if like a little switch, clicked on her the music started she started dancing like crazy and her face like lit up like she was so excited that this music was going on now also at this party were a lot of teenagers so here's out here in the middle of the basketball court is lily going full-on mosh pit and the high schoolers are all like this 
you know, terrified. And, and come on, Donovan was playing Green Day. What do you do for Green Day? You jump up and down and into each other. That's what Green Day is about. It's aggressive. Lily understood it. She rejoiced. She had no idea what was being sung, which was a good thing. But, <laughs> but she rejoiced. There was a, an excitement. And you know what? I don't think that you and I actually have that kind of Lily-esque joy when we come here tonight. Or when we go to the other structures of the village. Or when we hang out with people and they say, hey, we're going to the house of the Lord. Hey, we're going on Sunday night to worship. Ah! Like, we're not, we're not happy. I mean, we, we, we're subdued like those teenagers. We Somehow, as we've become adults, right, we've begun to worry about what everybody thinks about us. We've begun to not even really actually know how to express being excited. And we're actually not that sure we should be excited. Because I think the question that most of us come to God with and life with is, should I hope or should I despair? Like, give me a reason to hope. Prove it to me. Prove that I can hope. Prove that I should rejoice. Prove that I should be happy. Right? But here, we have a man who's tasted something, a writer, it's like, and he's, he's moving towards God and he's hanging on to, to the idea that God cares about him. And now he's found people who care about Jesus. There's an element of, that should grab us. We should be excited. That there are people who love Jesus, who want to come and worship and sing and listen and eat together and give us hope. So in Psalm 122, the writer actually understands this. And so, as he says, he's rejoicing because people want to go up to the house of the Lord with him. He immediately jumps into the future. And he says, our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Our feet are standing in your gates. Now, I know you've heard people say, don't live in the future. Don't live in the past. Don't live in the present. Because you can't do anything about the future. You can't do anything about the past. But you can do something about the present. Right? That's the worldly wisdom. But if you're a Christian, you live in the future in the present. Right? This is what he's saying. That there is a future hope. We're going to stand in the gates of Jerusalem and we're standing in the gates of Jerusalem now. Right? He's saying there is a reason to hope. Because if there's no future, if there's no, remember last week I read Revelation, if Jesus, if God isn't coming to live with man and make all things new and wipe away tears and deal with things in the world, if there's if we're not living in if that, if you're not coming here excited about that, that you have eternal life and that you're going to be in the kingdom of God, there's no reason to hope. There's no reason to do this. If we don't bring what is in the future or to the present, if we don't live in that, if we don't savor that, if we don't reflect on that, there's no point. And so the writer says, here we are standing in the gates of Jerusalem. And then he begins to address the things that will give us hope. The reason that standing in Jerusalem gives us hope. It begins, and for us, standing with Jesus. 
Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. Now he starts out his journey in Kedar and the tents that are all separated and, and around people who lie all the time and aren't for peace. And the thing he's talking about is a city that's compacted together. It's like very close together. The streets are intertwined. You know, urban planners do a lot of work to try to get people to have a sense of neighborhood and safety when they design neighborhoods, right? They're, they're trying to, to create community and help you feel safe. That's one of the things they do. But part of that is that when you have a neighborhood where people can walk around and people know each other and the neighborhood feels safe, you begin to get an identity. And you begin to say, this is my neighborhood. These are my people. I care about what happens here. Right? You get an identity. And it's sort of similar to being around your relatives that you actually enjoy. Right? So this week, because Anna was having a birthday, um, all of Julie's family came in. And for those of you who don't know, and most of you as I look around were kind of small tonight, most of you know this, that I have lived with my wife and Keith and Julie for 17 years in the same house, which is remarkable, with our kids. Which is a remarkable thing in itself. But as I'm sitting there with Julie's family around, and they're all laughing, and they're talking, and what's really interesting is I've lived with Julie for 17 years. I will actually live with Julie probably if things go as hopefully as planned in my mind, longer than any of her family will have lived with her. And yet, as soon as her family came in, it wasn't me giving her identity. It wasn't my family giving her identity. Like, you could tell they were genetically put together. Like, they knew things about each other that I didn't know because they grew up together. And there was a way of talking and laughing and being together. They had an identity that felt very close together, right? In some ways, like a, me- a metaphor, a metaphorical neighborhood, right? That was, was tightly knit. They had an identity. And that, that little picture at that table, people laughed and talked, and as her brother-in-law tells horrible jokes all the time, right? He's great. If you get to meet him, I love him, but he, you know, everybody groans when he starts telling a joke. It's hilarious. Um, but they all love him for it. Um, but, it was a metaphor for the kingdom of God. It was, it, in a way, it was a picture. And the thing that you and I have to hope for, it, the thing that we're, we're hoping as we turn and as we face Jesus, as we walk away from things and face them, the thing that's going to give us hope and not despair is that we have an identity that's built with people who love Jesus, that we're all interconnected. And that as we come together there's something mystical that happens. We have an identity. That's why we hope and don't despair. That's why we rejoice when we come here. That's the symbolic thing for the Israelites in Jerusalem is they have an identity of this beautiful city that's put together, that everybody's interconnected, that is built around certain kinds of festivals. And it is the same for us. So the second idea he he puts forward, he said in verse 4, says, that is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statutes given to Israel. Now, 
what he's saying is, is that there are commands for everybody in Israel to go up to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals, and in particular for one festival, Passover. It's important to get to Jerusalem. It's an order. It's a statute. Well, you know what? Rules actually make you who you are. Statutes make you who you are. Right? They make communities. We follow certain things here at the village. We follow certain rhythms and statutes. They make us who we are. What they're rejoicing in is that the God of the universe has given them some commands that give them identity, that give them a sense of belonging. Right? I use this example a lot, but you all know it's true, and that is that there is a Seepin way, that's my last name, to do things. There's a Brunson way to do things. There, think, take your last name. There's a Bloom way to do things. Right? A McConnell way. I can go through all the names at the village. A Crawford way. There are all these ways of doing things, and those ways make you who you are. Right? They make you who you are. And they contrast you to others. Now, as we read John 15, there was something that kept happening. Jesus keeps saying to his disciples, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. The thing that makes us, gives us a sense of belonging, the thing in the future that gives us hope in the present is that if we remain in Jesus, Jesus will be with us and we can ask whatever we want. Like, that obedience gives us a sense of belonging, gives us a sense of purpose, gives us a sense of identity, gives us a reason not to despair. It gives us a sense of hope. We'll kind of expand that a little later. So first, it's the city, then it's the statutes. But I think number five is the one that, or verse five is the one that kind of really is the thing that most of us are asking. In reflection of standing in the gates of Jerusalem, the writer says, there the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. What he's saying is when you get to Jerusalem, justice happens. Justice will be meted out. And the question, the reason that most of us think we should despair is that we do not think justice happens. Right? We look around this world and we say, there is no justice. And we look at our own stories and we say, there is no justice. We say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't the way the world's supposed to be. And we despair. We despair. And yet what the writer is saying is, is he's out in Jerusalem. They're hi- out in the, in the hills. And as they're hiking towards Jerusalem, there's danger. And what they're saying is, when we get to Jerusalem, everything will be made right. There, this is where judgment happens. The thing that gives a follower of Jesus hope and not despair is that Jesus says that he will punish evil. He will take what was wrong and make it right. He will change the way things are. A new heaven and a new earth. What was old and what was wrong will be made new. And that is true at every single level of the world. That's the only reason, one of the main reasons that you and I have hope is that the God of the universe says through Jesus, justice will happen. As you look at all the things in your own life and other people's lives and in the world, and you ask the question, why should I hope and not despair? The answer is Jesus 
is making and will make all things new. That's what he's about. He's about that now in your life, and he's about completing that in the future. And so these are the things, the reasons, as he is reflecting on having his friends head towards Jerusalem, here's the reasons why they should hope. Why they should hope. But then he goes on to, to respond to that. And, and this is sort of, this, I, when I read this song, it's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever, you've probably done this, some of you, you go on a hike, and you're going to go on a 30 mile hike. I don't know if most of you have done this before. But you go on a long hike, it's a couple, couple days at least. And that first night, when you go out and hike, and you get the campfire together, and you're with your buddies, and they're sitting there, and you're just hanging out, and you're talking, and you're not that sore yet, and it's the first night in the hammock, and it's just it's just that really nice time, and and if Mark Crawford is around, he's got his ukulele, and this is the song you're singing. Like there's this this is a campfire song in the beginning before it gets rough. The thing that's going to get you into the mountains and get you excited and give you the energy is to begin to talk about where you're going to get. Right? That's usually what gives us hope, is to talk about the end destination. Right? And so this is kind of a campfire song. And so he's talked about why they should have hope. And then in verse 6, he begins to talk about what he's going to do or what should happen. He says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within the walls and security within your citadels. I'll just continue to read the rest of the psalm. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. So the first response to hope, to actually getting to a place where you're like, okay, this is why I'm not going to despair. This is why I'm going to have hope and you kind of are settled in that, is to begin to pray. And the thing that, that the, the writer says we should pray is for peace and security. That the thing that you should be praying for me, the thing I should be praying for you, the thing that we should be all praying for each other is peace and security. When you are caught up like Lily on the basketball court, excited about the sounds and the music and the hope that you have, the thing that you need to pray for is for my peace. Now, not my peace in the sense that you hope that God will make it really good for me and that I will strike it rich and everything will be nice and I'll drive a jag and it'll all be good. No, not that kind of peace. Not a peace where everything is just convenient for me. That's not peaceful. No, we're talking about what, what the word is in Hebrew, and you've probably heard it, but it's shalom. But it's like a, from my head to my toes, sense of well-being. That no matter what happens, I'm okay. That's what you're asking for. You're saying, well, no matter what happens to Eric, help him to be in you. Help him to be okay. Help, give him your peace. Give him your sense of safety. Help him feel your shamar, your hedge around him. Right? So when you're caught up in the joy, and we, we may need to do a little work at the village to get caught up in the joy, but when you get into your lily-esque joy, you're called to pray for me and everybody here in the community that there would be peace and safety. If you are wondering what to pray for people, it's for peace and security.
Now, it's interesting that the writer would talk about this peace because remember, what is it in, in Psalm 120? He's like, I speak for peace and nobody listens. But now I'm caught up in the joy of the journey with my friends and I'm talking about peace and it's exciting and so I'm praying for more peace. I'm praying for a bigger experience of God. Okay? That's the thing we need to pray for. Not that everything will work out, but there will be a powerful sense of peace in our lives as we choose to hope and not despair. But then he goes on and he says, For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will say, Peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. And here is the hard thing, is these two fours. What the writer is saying is, I'm all in. I'm all in. I am all in. For you to say peace be with you to somebody means that you are all in. Because I cannot tell you peace if I'm not willing to help you have peace. If I'm not willing to live my life out with you in a way that you that we have peace. Like to say peace to somebody is to say I'm here for your good. I'm going to actually work on your peace. This is not something I'm just saying to you. I'm actually saying, hey, we're in it together. I'm going to make sure that my life is it provides you peace. You're going to have to be all in. The response to praying for peace and the response to having hope is being all in. But not only just saying peace and saying my life is going to live out a way where you can have peace. He says he's going to seek the, the house of the Lord's prosperity. Well, that means that you're not just telling each other individuals, hey, peace to you, and I'm in it with you. You're saying, I'm all in here at the community of village. I'm all in. Like, I am going to seek the prosperity of God's people in general. Like, Psalm 122 is such a shift from the other two Psalms because the writer is super, super excited about being invested. He's super, super excited about his hope. He's ready to climb up in the mountains and take a risk to get to the house of the Lord. He's all in. I want to jump to John 15. Back to John 15. Because Jesus and continues after, we'll start in verse 11, but he continues and what he encourages his disciples to do is be all in. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. So here's his statue. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Now, Jesus' version of being all in is to say, guess what, guys? If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, guess what I'm about to do? I'm about to lay my life down for you. I'm about to die. 
And a, a, a master does not die for his servant. A friend lays his life down. And so what he's saying, Jesus is saying to his disciples, and what he's saying to you and I is, you're my friends. I have told you everything that the Father has told me. Through the disciples, he's told the disciples that, he's told you and I that. We're God's friends. So what he says to us as friends is, you have to love one another. That the, the statue that we hang our hats on as people who are followers of Jesus, the thing that brings you all in, is that you have decided to follow somebody who is willing to give their entire, who gave their entire life for your friendship. That the one statute that we, that gives us hope is that the God of the universe died for our sins and gives us an opportunity to relationship with Him eternally. That's transformative. Because what happens in this community is that when you're struggling in your marriage, what Jesus says to you is, lay your life down for your wife. Lay your life down for your husband. When you're struggling in friendship, Jesus says, love by laying your life down, by giving up yourself. Now let me tell you what that provides for you, because it's very powerful. That when I'm willing to lay my life down for you, when I consciously think about laying my life down for you, in our relationship with each other, I can do two things. Number one, I can actually give you dignity. Like in your brokenness, in the places that you're messed up, because of what Christ has done for you, I can just love you. I don't need you to change. I don't need to fix it. I don't need to tell you you need to fix this because if you don't, I'm leaving or you don't belong here. No, I can actually give you dignity. I can care for you because it's not about me. Because I'm following my Savior. But number two, it does something really powerful. As I give you dignity and as I lay my life down for you, I can actually call you out. I can call you out on, and I'll use a, a theological word, I can call you out on your depravity, right? On your sinfulness. Because if I give you dignity and I love you and I lay my life down for you, I can also say, man, you might want to look at what's going on here. You might want to look at that part of the onion. You, you need to peel it, man. Like I can, I can talk to you because I've laid my, I'm laying my life down for you. Right? It transforms the way we relate to each other. It's powerful. Because we can offer each other dignity and we can offer a calling out of each other's depravity. We can speak truth to one another. So my hope as we walk, as we take the next step in the journey of the Psalms of Ascent, that you'll hold on to two pictures. One picture is, you'll have to imagine, for those of you who didn't see it, Lily on a dance floor dancing to Green Day. Right? The joy and the, the I don't understand, just the complete release. Doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. About being there. That picture of her is who we're called to be when we get a sense that we're amongst God's people and amongst people who love Jesus. That when you are driving here on Sunday night or going to Pilgrim Group or going to monastic community or meeting for coffee or in counseling or whatever it is that you do with the village constructs, that you are thinking, 
how would Lily approach this? How would she, how excited would she be about seeing these people? Right? How would she rejoice? That's what we're called to. And the second thing is that Jesus is asking you to be all in. He's asking you to be all in. Because He's all in. He is all in for you. And if you want to have a rich life where you're allowing God to prune you and bear lots of fruit and not just kind of withering and being out of relationship with God, you've got to be all in. You've got to obey. And that is you have to lay your life down. I want to offer those thing, two things because we're headed up the mountains into Jerusalem. That's where we're headed as a, in this story. And so we want to have Lily in our minds and we want to have that phrase, am I all in? What parts of my life am I not all in? What's going on? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this community. Thank you for your words. Um, God, I just want to just pray right now for all of us um, who are here and not here, but in particular just the different health things that are in our community at this point in time, that you would just lay your healing hand on all of us, especially as we head into cold season. And um, God, as we live out life together, I just ask that you would um, give us the courage to lay our lives down for one another as we follow you. And ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.